You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. This is your murder mystery world tour. And welcome back to our discussion on The Tales from Two Pockets by Carol Chapek. Chapek. I, I got it right. You did. Congratulations. You've officially won no points. But we're in the other pocket now. We've uncovered the deep dark hole that we're going to sit in for this week. And it's in Carol Chapek's pocket. I assume a trouser pocket. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Our yeah, previous yeah. story was the left pocket. Now we're in the right pocket. Yeah. Whichever way. I don't really know how Carol Chapek organized his pockets. It's a great question. I mean, it says the other pocket, but maybe he had like five pockets. It's true. It's, it's true. really more of a metaphor for the pockets of, you know, his entire outfit. You know, he's checked the first half of his pockets and now it's the other half. And it wouldn't be entirely unlike a mystery author to have a jacket with secret pockets. Oh my goodness. Pockets with zips, pockets with buttons, pockets with secret codes you can like type in to get in. <laughs> oh, I want this jacket now. So Flex. this is this is a mystery short story collection <laughs> from Carol Chapek, who is a yeah. very well-read mystery reader and decided to set his writing skills to what has been dubbed by some as an ill-fated <laughs> venture into murder mystery fiction. Nah. But this collection, The Tales from Two Pockets, is said to be the best and actually good work of his in that yeah. period. It's it's fantastic. I've loved reading through these stories. Uh, and speaking of, the ones we'll be looking at today are The Cactus Thief and An Ordinary Murder. Yes. Which we have to say like that. Yes, you can thank Norma Bean Comrada for this translation. Yeah. We spoke about her on last week's episode, and it was still her efforts that translated this section of the story. Sweet Miss Bean. Well, Herds, let's get into the stolen cactus or the cactus thief or uh, the cactus (laughs) stealing. The cactus that stole my my heart. Is that what it did? Is that what this story did? I mean, it tickled my funny bone in a way that no story has in in a while. Yeah, I was really confused. I was really (laughs) confused when you picked this story and I was reading through and I was like, Herds, there's no yeah. mystery here. No, there is no murder. There is no murder mystery. There is no murder. There's no gigantic stakes. It's just this guy telling this story about how somebody was stealing his master's cactuses, and we've got to we've got to find him and bring him back. I, I would like it's to say so there charming. are some stakes, and the the well, spikes on cacti that ah, uh, corporate is impaled. I on. see the Russian bayonet uh, yes. stakes. Yes, of the, course. The really strange thing about this collection, as opposed to the tales from one pocket, yeah, is that. All of the stories in this one, with with a couple of exceptions, seem to be recounted tales. I was going to say, it reminds me of people, you know, sitting around the campfire telling horror stories. Mm. It feels like the characters, the, the perspective we're following, are, are almost trying to solve the mysteries in their head, even though they've already been solved. Because the, yeah. the these stories, um, and this is a shift that's kind of gradual in, in the, the first pocket, but... Right now, face these stories are not about solving murder mysteries. They're about solving the the problems that surround them and the kind of context of a mystery in in someone's life. Yeah, they're very deconstructive of the genre as a whole, which is something we spoke yeah. about a lot on the previous episode. But herds, <laughs> what is this story deconstructing? I assume you uh, chose it for <laughs> some slightly more loftier reason other than it being the funniest well, one. Well, so my kind of thought process here, because it is the funniest one, it's also the first one in the book, which it makes is, it, it like really great as a, as a kind of a way to ease the author in. Because yeah. the second story we're going to talk about is a lot darker than this one. Yes. So, you know, we got self-light and, light, light and funny, and that's what we do on this show. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that there's something to be said for the, the, the kind of absurdist angle that it takes and yeah. showing that like, 
our, our obsession with solving mysteries and getting inside the criminal mind, all of that could be kind of pointless in a sense. Mm. You know, it, it's it's not something that is required for a good story. I don't think that this is a story that you need to be intellectual to to solve or figure out. There is none of that. It's just a group of friends chatting about an absurd situation they found themselves in. And I, I love the way that we explore this criminal because yeah. they're kind of a derp. They're not this like criminal Moriarty trying to out with the detective. They're just a very simple cactus leaf who enjoys the prickling of a, a supple cacti in their bosom. That's a thing. <sighs> just. <laughs> best line. The best line in the whole story, honestly. Just, why did... Why did Carol Chapek do this to me? I don't know, but I love it. Why did he feel the need to write that line? It's like so out of place. No, it's beautiful. The scene stops to let that line happen, and I was mm-hmm. just left dumbfounded as to why. I love it. This this, <laughs> this character, this, I'm going to say, Raychek, I think, this character. Bit of this, a Falks Pass. A Falks Pass, Raychek, that's what we're going with. He's... He's a derp. He's really just stealing these cacti because he has a passion for it. Yeah. He's not doing it out of any malice, and he almost seems kind of confused when he's caught. Uh, and he, you know, even at the end, they're saying, "We got to take all your cacti away now, sir. Those rightfully belong to someone." He says, "Can't I just serve time? I don't want to lose my beautiful, <laughs> my beautiful thorned mistresses." It's there great. is something kind of excellent. And I won't I won't spoil the ending to our previous book, but there is kind of an excellent parallel to the weird out of place ending yeah. in our last story compared yeah. to this one where it's like, yeah. oh, well, you know, instead of being punished, we'll just send you off to Mexico to look into more cacti. <laughs> and then he dies anyway because he's too much just, of a fool. Uh, it's so good. Well, but it still ties into that concept of criminal justice, right? Yeah. In that in a story where we're presented with a very serious detective and a very serious murderer, the end result is that one of them is hanged. Yes. Uh, you know, because that's that's the punishment for being a criminal and doing a murder. But in this story, we have this character who has done something so insignificant, but it's inf- conflated so much by the characters that love these cacti that it's only fitting that they still receive the capital punishment, but it's in the most absurd out of the blue way possible. I suppose, I suppose. I think the thing that more stood out to me in this story was it felt like this story was breaking down what it meant to be the audience in detective fiction. Sure. Where we have, you know, the opening page, it's already talking about, oh, look, Czech is a rich and precise language. <laughs> it's kind of making fun of the lofty way, I guess, we talk about these no, mystery for sure. stories. I feel that. When ultimately it's like this is a petty theft. Yes, and has nothing yeah. to do with us. Yeah. No, absolutely. And if you look at the way that they address it, they say they get two amateur detectives and they yeah. put an ad in the newspaper and things escalate and they have this whole like scheme about these cacti gay disease in a situation where it doesn't really need to. Yeah. And I love that. It's also, everything is very gossipy. Yes. Like a lot of the ways that we look at alibis and the ways that suspects present themselves in murder mystery mm-hmm. fiction is, you know, all very he, sh- he said, she said... Pointing yeah, yeah, out, yeah. oh, well, I heard that this other person was more <laughs> suspicious than me. Yes. Oh, the two cacti, like, cults. I love them. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's kind of very reflective here, though. It's a, like, it's a really obscure way to deconstruct that yeah. relative to some of the very precise deconstructions we got in the tales Absolutely. from the first pocket. Like, that's that's intentional. I think that the kind of vagueness that we feel in this uh, in this opening chapter to the second half is very much designed to ease ourselves into it um, that's the vibe that I definitely got from from the other the other stories because by the time I will talk about was when we get to um, an ordinary murder, but like things are going.
going to get very real very quickly <laughs> if you read all of these stories in order. Yeah. And yeah. I think probably the most specific deconstruction we had in this story was the mm. passage where we get the fake Harvard Lotson solution. Oh, yeah. Which is obviously meant to be paralleling that trope in detective fiction where we have the detective put out the false solution to try bait the culprit in. Right, yeah, yeah. It's something that we've seen a lot in some of the stories, both off the show and on the show, but I liked the way that it just absolutely made light of it by just saying, oh, yeah, it was just a newspaper clipping, and the guy <laughs> came in, and it's like, oh, it doesn't exist. It just sets it up and Got gets him. rid of it yeah. within, like, two lines, and it's such a brilliant moment of demonstrating the pace in this yes, story. Yes, You know, obviously, it's, like, six pages long, so well, it's Well, this not is a- the thing. <laughs> I, I, I read this whole story through, and then I came back to it just before we did the yeah. show, and I was like, wow, it really was just that short. There are yeah. only really, you know, four major events that happen, and each of them are a page or two long. Mm. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, and one of the interesting things about it, as I say, that moment feels like it sets a good pace, mm. but not to say that it feels, like, laboriously slow. No, no. But the story feels longer than it is. Yeah, for sure. Um, which is a really interesting aspect of its writing where like we get a lot done at a slow pace that still feels <laughs> like we're fitting a lot. Am I making sense here? I, I, I mean, I mean, I think, think I think you're making some sense. Like the antithesis to how I'm explaining this point is how the story is. The opposite of what you're saying or yeah. how you're saying it. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it feels like it feels like there's a lot more meat here, yeah, right? Yeah. It feels chunky, which I know is a terrible way of explaining things, but that's how it feels. This story has so much in it; it's such a small space. It's like a, it's like a pudding in a bowl, you know. Personally, I'm just very glad that the story didn't do anything ridiculous, like expect us to know the science of cactus. Like, yes. oh yes, there was this much water in the cactus, and thus the criminal could only have been <laughs> someone who was seen dehydrated the yes, following day. Well, well, it's funny, isn't it, that we we are still using criminal science psychology yeah, yeah. of a sense to to catch the criminal. We don't actually have to understand the like diseases, the various diseases that could affect a cactus. Mm. Uh, and yet it is still part of the solution. It is. is. Device X, so to speak. Yeah. I love a good old device X. When it's implemented well. When it's implemented yeah. well. And, and in this case, in a sense that you don't actually have to understand the various diseases. You don't have to understand device X, just that it's being used to catch mm. a culprit. Well, either way, that has been the cactus thief. The stolen yeah. cactus, whichever name your edition of the <laughs> story you has want. it. Honestly, if you if you steal a cactus, you get to name it whatever you want. You're the thief. That's Just your job. Don't steal it like Rake did or Rake R- or Rachek. Mike or whatever Look, Falk's password. Let us know on the name socials with. at Flex and Herds. Let, let, let us know how to pronounce that name because <laughs> I could not figure it out for the life of me. This is Flex and Herds. You're listening to Death of the Reader. And right now we are joined by Andrew B. Patterson, Australian crime fiction author and former police officer who has been involved with Western Australia's child abuse and vice units, as well as ICAC. A man who, despite Google's insistent attempts to convince me otherwise, is not actually the aftermath of a run-in between Australian poet Banjo Patterson and the Elixir of Life. (laughs) It's amazing how many times on Google Banjo Patterson's name is spelt incorrectly. Yeah, I, I imagine uh, I imagine you have a similar struggle to us because we have uh, our show named after an academic theory that's very, very famous in academic circles. So anytime someone Googles our show, even if they type our name correctly, it comes up with the similar academic theory ahead of us. And it's like, damn you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all right. That's what this show is all about, clearing up the confusion surrounding <laughs> Google's search engine. All right. So, Andrew, you are an author of noir crime, of hard-boiled crime. You know, typically we deal with the slightly cozier side of detective fiction and puzzles on this show. What is it that you enjoy most about noir above our cozy circles? For me, the hard-boiled noir, and I'll I'll use the terms together. I mean, 
we can have arguments about definitions. <laughs> and we're not going to go there. Um, but uh, for me, it's it's the characterization uh, and the hard side of it, uh, and putting across what actually goes on out there. And for me, that's one of the motivations in writing crime in the first place uh, to put out to people: this is what goes on out there. Which is why some of what I write is not very pleasant. Mm-hmm. I'm very much into the realism side of it, mm. so the hard-boiled uh, appeals from that perspective. Yeah, so you maintain a list of cops writing crime fiction yes. that you refer to as the squad. <laughs> what are those benefits that the realism that former law enforcement members bring to crime fiction and how does how does that contribute to what you enjoy about the genre? Mm. I think the, the the fact that the you know, authors who have been out there on the streets and doing police work, uh, they can bring what I'd call it the, the brush strokes of police life to the page and it, it just gives those, even sometimes even only small nuances, but it just gives it that realistic touch. I first read, um, uh, when I was a young uniformed officer, I read Joseph Wombaugh, who was probably the, uh, uh, I'd say the first big name in terms of ex-police who, who wrote crime fiction. And it really just resonated, despite the fact he was writing about cops in Los Angeles. Uh, I was a cop in Perth, which by stand, you know, comparison was quite sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> <to> LA. <laughs> uh, but the realism and, and just the, the way the police interact and, and how they get on and do their jobs and in some cases survive their jobs yeah. is, is quite fascinating, I think. Do you find that that influence extends much beyond crime fiction? I know one of my favorite musicians is an ex-police officer and a lot of the lyrics that that band deals mm. with tend to deal with his life as a police officer. Apart from writing what you know. Mm. I think it's also wanting to put stories out there. And, and to me, one of the, I suppose, almost cathartic aspects of it is that you can, in fiction, you can get a level of justice that you can't always get in real life mm. yeah. <laughs> or perhaps a, a level of injustice as well. But Yeah. In your article earlier this year for the, the Mysteries Journal, you oh, said okay. that, uh, yeah, we've been reading up. <laughs> uh, one of the most important things authors can do is to read and to read a lot. Yeah. How do you find that helps your writing process? I think it, it broadens your perspective in terms of both concepts for writing uh, and also the way language is used. I love the English language. It, it's wonderful to work with. And I think seeing how other writers express things, um, both ideas and how they, how they draw characters, I think you can, you can gain a lot from that. Obviously, you don't want to step over the line into starting to plagiarise <laughs> or <laughs> copy too heavily. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think it, it really broadens your mind in terms of what writing can achieve. And, I mean, there's so many good authors out there. So you self-publish your works largely, uh, you say, to keep editorial control. Yep. Do you ignore someone if they come and say, you know, this part of the story goes too far? Because a lot of your editorial control seems to be about keeping the gritty realism of it. So wh- where do you draw that line on feedback of, like, what's acceptable to put in and out of your okay. books. To me, it, it's about does the story work? Yeah. And so I do have both the novels that I've self-published. I have had a professional editor mm. do an edit towards the end of the editing process mm. uh, because I definitely want that extra set of eyes. You, you know, you, as you guys would know, you, you go blind to your own stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, and people point things out and you think, I've read that 10 times. How did I miss it? But you do. But no, particularly in terms of just are there bits of the story that jar or they don't work or are there bits about characters which don't work for the reader? Mm. Uh, so those sort of bits of feedback I'll certainly take on. And look, in, in both instances um, with both of the, the editors that I had do the books and they were different ones, uh, I took on board 80 to 90% of what the feedback they gave me 
And there are a few bits I beg to differ. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I maintain that right. Uh, But so that, that, um, at the end of the day, you are writing for readers. So you want the story to work. The the aspect of editorial control to me is about keeping in those bits, which I think, uh, you know, I think we're down to four main commercial publishing houses now here in Australia. Editors at those will make commercial decisions and and that's fine. Mm. You know, they are there to... Yeah, you know, make money. They they may look at parts and think, no, that's simply too gritty for our reader, you know, mm. for the readership. That's too explicit. So that's what I mean by editorial control. Mm. I don't. Uh, I'm happy to have the editorial feedback in terms of how does the story flow and how's the language used, and that's all good stuff to hear, hear back. But look, bottom line is, I don't want somebody telling me. You can't say that. Especially you're, you're writing fiction, but you're writing based on a, a wide breadth of, of real experiences, very personal experiences. Yep. How do you manage your emotional health when putting down on, on paper <laughs> such death of corruption and misery and uh, all that for your audience? I think and I'm going to use the word I, I used a little bit earlier on. It, it's very cathartic in a lot of ways Yeah. because, yes, it's it's fiction. I think the phrase is inspired by real events. <laughs> uh, but it's all fiction and if I ever end up in court, I'll be maintaining it is fiction. Um, but it really is about being able to tell the stories um, and I think the, the emotional hard bits were living those real things in the, in the first mm. place. Um, and, I, I mean, that was something that struck me in, in reading the, the Chapek uh, short story here about compartmentalisation of things, which talk about in due course, no doubt. Yeah. But uh, really I find it emotionally a very good experience because you're getting a lot of stuff out there. And, and, you know, on, on that level I guess it's a bit like having a good vent, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Jumping over to your actual writing now from kind of these broad strokes about your work, in what ways does your detective reflect your own work as a detective and where do you differ from him? <laughs> okay, well, I will say at the outset, I'm I'm not Harry Kenmare. Um, <laughs> there are certainly aspects of of him which mm. are very much from me yeah. as a person. Obviously, the the backstory he he was a detective sergeant in the police, so was I. Um, he got kicked out. I hasten to add, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I left of my own steam, but uh, I think and some of the experiences he's had, obviously, I've drawn from my experiences. It's easy to write for me a character like Harry because. That's obviously he's you know, around the same age as me, similar experiences. Yeah. The harder bits to write are, for instance, writing um, uh, the the female characters, the mm. twins. Um, it's clearly, <laughs> and this is where I had some interesting feedback, uh, both from the editor in the first book and and also from uh, my sister who oversees who reads the drafts, saying, "Oh, um, no, it wouldn't work for a young girl." Okay, great. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's good to know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and in fact, both times, both books, the, the editors have been females and I've done that deliberately. Yeah, no. So I, to get that other perspective. I think that's always a very sensible choice, making sure that your editors actually do come in with a different perspective. Because yes. I mean, obviously, even for us on this show, we come from a very similar perspective on crime fiction. So sometimes we'll be talking about a point and then someone will walk into the room and say, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's just like, okay, all right, tell me more. Yeah, yeah. help me out here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so your third book, starring Harry, is is on the way. Uh, did you know where you want to conclude the series when you started? Uh, short answer: No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, look, the genesis of the of the first book, Harry's World, uh, originally, uh, I, I wrote. Well, going right back to the very start of it, um, I had a back when I was doing some university studies. I had a unit I was doing in criminology, and one of the assignments, which was a fascinating assignment, was to take. Uh, a line of Raymond Chandler, and there were four, I think, from memory, mm. offered. Uh, and, of course, he's one of the greats and hard-boiled, wonderful use of language. And then you had to write a 500-word story. 
mm. starting with that as the opening line. The third book, uh, which is uh, just due to other pressures in life, is is very slim at this stage. <laughs> but um, slim is not zero. No, it's not. That's right. There is there is a start there, and I'm also working on a book of short stories at the, at the same time. But I know where he wants to go. I want to have him by the end of the third book. Are there going to be more books after that? Look, I'm going to have to wait and see. I want to see how I feel about it. Look, um, all things going well. Third novel, uh, Harry's Grail is its title. Uh, Should be out um, hopefully about this time next year. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on Death of the Reader. And my pleasure. You've you've given away a bit earlier that we have uh, we've spoken with you about Carol Chappick here, and we're going to get you to stick around, (laughs) talk about our next story in Ordinary Murder in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. This is your murder mystery world tour. And we are continuing our discussion on Carol Chapek's Tales from Two Pockets. Right now, we are discussing a tale from the second half of this collection, An Ordinary Murder. We still have Andrew Patterson in with us, who kindly agreed to uh, read this story, which I'm so glad because I, I really think you'd love it, given your style of crime and the kind of things that you deal with. And I think this is also probably one of my favorite ones in the collection. It was a good pick, Hertz. Thank you. I had a flick through them to begin with. I was like, which one of these looks interesting? Which one of these do we think would be good for the show? And I read the opening of Naughty Mona and I said, this has blown me away. <laughs> I am. There is no more depressing yet somehow interesting story I've read in a very long time. So we had to talk about it. A perfectly ordinary murder with nothing exciting or interesting about it. And that's <laughs> that's what makes it so good. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think it's an excellent story. We deal basically with the aftermath of the murder of a character called Mrs. Takova. Um, a lovely old lady. As with many of the stories in the second half of this collection, it's told from the spoken perspective of someone who was there at the time of the crime. Mm. And I, I really enjoy the way that it gets into our storyteller's psyche. Um, I think that it's really fascinating how we get to look at this very deconstructive perspective on what it feels to be adjacent to a crime, the mm. people involved, the emotions. Yeah, getting sucked into the experience. <laughs> because our perspective, uh, Mr. Hanak, is a former um, un- undisclosed rank army leader. Um, and the story deals a lot with him comparing the murder of a single woman to comparing his war experience and digging mass graves. Mm-hmm. The thing that really struck me was how much is compressed into such a short Space, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is is that certainly a sign of a, of a brilliant author um, being able to say so much, um, and yet, I mean, look, printed out, it's it's less than three pages, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so obviously, we're not getting any plot development or anything like that, but we're getting, I think, a whole lot of facets of about crime uh, and society. Even in the opening paragraph, we 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 get the inherent instinct for justice yeah. line. I mean, it's almost underplayed there, but it it does, I think set up the story uh, very well because, mm. I mean, I would certainly agree that that is a driving force, uh, I think, for most human beings. Uh, so I think that that's, that's a very uh, profound element um, and, as I said, is put in quite an unstated way. I think the other thing that, that really um, struck me and this I reflected back on sort of my own police time as well because Mr Hanak talks about obviously being in the front line, um, I'm presuming the First World War mm. uh, they're referring to. The, the comparison then to one murdered woman yeah. mm-hmm. uh, is very starkly drawn. But I think what it's reflecting is that the, dis- the description of, of how they put up with uh, the mass, effectively mass murder on the, on the front line is very much about compartmentalising uh, things that are difficult to deal with. And certainly that's the way you know, most police survive aspects of police work that um, 
if you thought about them too much, you'd probably go insane. I did like the way that it kind of almost inverted the concept of compartmentalizing it as an example when it said that, you know, every corpse should have dozens of people come yes. and look at it so that they can each be appreciated. I appreciated a, a bit of, kind of visual <laughs> parallel uh, of the, the image of a, a foot in army boot and the, and the blood stain hair com- comparing with the description of the woman lying on the ground with her foot halfway out of the shoe, like... There's a lot of really, I suppose, punchy descriptions that mm. really lend the parallels of like the war versus this one poor woman who's been killed. And I think the thing that I kind of felt the most was how pitiful the whole thing was, how like the way that uh, Mr. Kova is described is as a, a beetle that's been disturbed um, and the bloodstained curtains. Like we get this impression that this murder, that when, when we think of murder mystery novels, we think of these, you know, you sit around at the, 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 the tea and you discuss <laughs> murder mysteries of how droll this is, you know, the vicars at the estate having tea with you, that sort of thing. Uh, but reframing this oh so fun murder mystery as a real person has been killed we, and she's she's got a starring role as a corpse. Yes. I, I found that to be really impactful myself. Yeah, I think the other detail that's really interesting in there, you mentioned the kind of comparison between the body of the soldier and the body of the woman and how they're described very similarly yeah. in that because this is a short story and there's so little time between yes. those comparisons that it's so upfront. Yep, it's very in your face. <laughs> and one one description that uh, really saw me in it, you referred to the, the dead lady's hair. Yes. But uh, where it was uh, so painstakingly braided and it shone like old pewter among mm. the congealed rivulets of blood. Yeah. I think that... Oh, yes, the, the, tingles. In, in that one, one part sentence, the, the level yeah. of description is magnificent. Mm. Yeah. I think the other important part of this story to me is actually there's a line break on the last page of the story, mm. which is such a subtle detail. Like normally, you know, you deal with a line break and it's like, oh, we've jumped a bit in time. But this line break is literally just the next person starts speaking. And I think that Carol Chapek has put that gap there to show like, this is where we're now dealing with the culprit as opposed to the victim. And that Mm. makes that transition feel so much more weighty. And it's such like a minor writing detail, but I love the way that it's used. Yeah. And I think the, the, the way the culprit is described there is also very human. Mm. Uh, And I think that then, and of course we we never find out what the motivation for the, for the murder is, but I think by humanizing the, the, the killer at the end, uh, I think that that adds I think, a layer of tragedy to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Which, which... At least they seem like a victim. The way that mm. they're described as a, I, I believe they're about to take away to be vivisected is the the terminology used, like a, a deer in the headlights. Um, it, it reminds me of a, a saying that I heard. I heard someone say that there's there's a moment where you realize that everyone, every person's experience around you is as vivid as your own. And even though it's highlighted that he only sees the the culprit for a total of five seconds, the imprint that this person has on their life is so profound. Yeah, I believe that was the definition of the word sonder, which was actually coincidentally enough the title of the last album from the musician I mentioned in our previous. <laughs> well, discussion. there you go. It all comes back around. Full circle, completely unplanned. We've done it. <laughs> they don't believe that. The audience don't believe that. Um, I, I did also like the way this entire collection has been very deconstructive of the murder mystery genre. We, we've spoken about that over this and last episode and how it breaks down all of the different components of the story and shows you where there are problems if these were real scenarios and where there are problems in you know you couldn't actually write an academic text based on murder mystery reasoning that's absolutely nonsense and i really like the way that this culprit being shown this way kind of sticks it in your face and says this is the life that you are basically giving to the person that you've ascribed the culprit to in all of your other favorite murder mystery stories i think that there's something very powerful about that image particularly if you're coming at this story from a conventional reader of Mm. cozy crime like Mm -hmm. it might be cozy but this is the outcome 
Here's the mirror. Turning it back to you. There's you. Look at these horrible things you're doing, detectives. Yeah, so that is Tales from Two Pockets. That has been our discussion on it. An ordinary murder full of House Vodiki, the Cactus Thief, the disappearance of an actor, and of course this mystery collection is 48 stories long. There's so many of them. How would we read them all? Uh, in order, ideally. <laughs> I hope so. I hope you read them in order. I mean, you really could just open up at any page yeah. and go with any of them. But you could. I think that there is a bit of a logical flow to the way that they're planned yeah. out through the collection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd like to thank you again, Andrew, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I really loved your perspective on this story and getting to hear about your own work. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on board. Now, Herds. Thank you for not seeing any of my points. I appreciate that. <laughs> but you know what we do have points for, Herds? Uh-huh. We have points on the table for the audience <gasps> over the next two weeks because we have Supporter Drive coming up on 2SER. It is two weeks that we take off to show you all the best that we have on 2SER. We're going to be doing a live show <gasps> from 7 to 9.30 p.m. That's like two and a half hours of us. It is a little insane. I'm a little scared. I've I've packed supplies. I'm bracing for the apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> I brought so much water. I'm going to be full tank of water. It's going to sit in the studio. Be very careful with it. We're going to stay hydrated. Keep an eye on our socials at Flex and Herds on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're going to be posting some short mystery stories there that you can solve along. Maybe call into the show. Maybe just send us a message. We have picked our next story for After Supporter Drive. It's sitting on the table right in front of us here. Herds, could you tell us a little bit about this book? Uh, it is Sins for Father Knox. I might say the paperback is beautiful. Mm. Uh, it's it's by Josef Skvoreski. Good try. Skvoreski. Unpronounceable, <laughs> I think is what I'm going to refer to him from now on. Uh, it's, it's by another Czechoslovakian author, and it's fantastic. It's... Yeah. Uh, written in response to, you know, Western uh, murder mystery fiction. And it's basically 10 short stories, and each of them breaks a different rule of Knox's uh, commandments. Now, Andrew, it's great. you mentioned Raymond Chandler earlier. I found out that Josef Skvoreski actually uh, started writing mystery fiction after reading and translating Raymond Chandler into his native Czechoslovakian. Okay. So I'm very excited to get to this story, yeah. breaking down the rules of one father, Ronald Knox. I'm looking forward to making my comeback. It's going to happen. I'm going to win this. This has been Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. We will see you next week. We're out of here. See you next time. <laughs>